Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me, I'm Katie Daly. Throughout this series, we have talked with people involved in many different aspects of bluegrass music. Our guest today could be called a jack of all trades, and more importantly, he's been a master of all of them. Fred Bartenstein was the editor of Mule Skinner News from 1969 through 1974. He's been a broadcaster, a musician, festival MC and talent director, a composer, and a record producer. He also compiled the first bluegrass market research and founded a regional association. Currently, Fred is the chair and president of the IBMA Foundation, which supports bluegrass music-related educational, literary, artistic, and historic preservation activities. Howard talks with Fred about his lifelong involvement with the music he loves and his latest project, Industrial Strength Bluegrass, Southwestern Ohio's musical legacy. It seems to be very rare that either Katie or I have talked to someone that has um, that basically got introduced to the music so early uh, in life. Typ- typically, most of the folks that we talk to were were introduced to the music in college or or as a young adult somewhere uh, a- after college. But it seems like you were fully immersed in the music, but in 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 the business, not just the music. Uh, by the time you were sixteen years old, can can you sort of go back and and describe um, your childhood as far back as you would like like to go and and describe what what you were doing up up to high school. Sure. Um, My parents were part of the great northward migration from the south. Both mom and dad were born in Virginia. My mom in southwestern Virginia, a little town called Lexington. And dad moved to New Jersey where he had a job working for a pharmaceutical company, but they never let their Virginia ties lapse. In fact, they thought it was important that all of their children have Virginia on their birth certificates. So mom would go back when she was about to deliver each child uh, to Virginia and stay with relatives. So when she had my youngest brother, I was six years old and I went with her back to Virginia and spent my first grade year there. And that is the first time I remember hearing bluegrass music. That would have been 1956, and the term bluegrass had not come into wide use yet. So I remember the music that I love being described as mountain music. And about the age of 10, I started to play the guitar. And by middle school, I was in a bluegrass band and then continued to do that through high school. I had the good fortune. We spent every summer in in Virginia and every Christmas in Virginia. And when I was 14 years old, spending the summer in in Lexington, I heard on the radio about a bluegrass festival, the first multi-day bluegrass festival in existence, and found a, a neighbor banjo player to take me to it. I was way too young to drive. So I actually got to go to the first Fincastle Bluegrass Music Festival, and that really set me on fire for bluegrass history, because in the bluegrass story on Sunday afternoon, Carlton Haney and Bill Monroe reassembled versions of the Bluegrass Boys and acted out the the full history of, of bluegrass as it developed. So 
I continued to go to those festivals in Fincastle, Virginia, and then it moved to Berryville, Virginia in 1967. Berryville's a little farther north. Labor Day weekend gets cold down by the Shenandoah River. Uh, I had a, a sleeping bag. And Carlton Haney by then knew who I was because I'd been doing some radio work at WREL in Lexington, Virginia. And he said I could put my sleeping bag in the medical tent behind the stage. And he had to go see his mother in the hospital on, on, uh, on Friday night. And he left Dick Freeland from Rebel Records in charge of the festival. And Dick had a few too many to drink on Friday night, so he did not feel like emceeing on Saturday morning. And so his son remembered uh, that I was in the medical tent and that I had DJ experience. And I was 16. And uh, so they came and, and pulled my leg and said, wake up, Fred, would you emcee this festival today? And I did. Uh, and apparently did a good job because when Carlton Haney came back, he was impressed that the show was on schedule and asked me to work all of his bluegrass shows and as many of my country music shows as I could get away from school to do. He was promoting major country music shows in coliseums around the East. Um, so that's how I got associated with Carlton Haney, began to spend every summer in North Carolina, working his festivals and other festivals, editing Mule Skinner News Magazine. And I did that all of my summers through through college. Now, back, backing, backing up a little bit, because it, I mean, it, it's 16 years old here, here you were fully invested in multiple facets of, of the industry. You, you noted uh, uh, you were the editor of uh, Mule Skinner and, and you all, you were already a, a broadcast personality. I mean, it's hard for me to fathom how a, um, a 16 year old kid, pardon the expression, a kid could actually gain so much experience in that short amount of time. Well, it, it was small town radio, you know, old fashioned daytimer AM station that uh, where I would do the news, the farm report, the rock and roll show, the country music show that uh, it was old fashioned radio, K-O-R-N from Hee Haw. Um, and so their standards weren't real high and they weren't paying a whole lot, but it was a great way to get some some broadcast experience. It occurred to me that radio broadcasting was something that not only interested me, but that if I could make my voice not sound too young, uh, the audience wouldn't know how old I was. And so later in, now it's the opposite. Now, if I can not make my voice sound old, the radio audience won't care uh, that I'm 70. I see. So, and uh, were there no publicity stills to uh, basically uh, shed light on your uh, on your tender years at that time? No, 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 none at all. That that was something that bigger stations did. And uh, and how about the, uh, your stint starting Mule Skinner? Uh, I mean that 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 had to be something else entirely. In the summer of 1969. Uh, that was when Carlton Haney asked me to move to North Carolina and help him organize the camps, the first Camp Springs Bluegrass Festival. 
And so I moved down there and then he decided that he would uh, publish the program in the middle of a magazine. And Kathy Kaplan from New York helped him put that first one together. I wrote a fair amount of it. And then we sold it and, to, and sold subscriptions. Shortly after that festival in September of 1969, I began college. And a couple months went by and there were no further issues of Mule Skinner News. And I was feeling uh, embarrassed uh, having charged people for subscriptions. So I decided that I would take it over. And so I edited it from you know, uh, November of 1969 through January of 1975. Now, uh, skipping a little bit ahead, you mentioned college. You, you spent your undergrad years at Harvard at, uh, at Boston. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. I, I had been accepted at a number of colleges, and I chose Harvard largely because Boston had the best bluegrass scene of any of the other schools that, that I had applied to. Uh, and so as I drove from North Carolina to Cambridge, Massachusetts and into Harvard Yard, what was mainly on my mind was getting down to the Hillbilly Ranch in downtown Boston, where for a while I would uh, play guitar with, with Everett Lilly and, the band, and Don Stover on B's Night Off. Um, in my freshman year at Harvard. And then uh, Nancy Talbot and I organized the Boston Area Friends of Bluegrass and Old Time Country Music that then evolved into the Boston Bluegrass Union and uh, started a bluegrass festival that evolved into Gray Fox. And uh, which, which went through the Winterhawk period and then became Gray Fox, I would imagine, after, after right. that. Is that correct? Now, I, I hate to say this, but w one, one would think that anyone that would choose a school like Harvard solely based on um, musical activity in the area, w one would, might think that there was something wrong with that person. Oh, I'm sure there's, I'm a bluegrass fan and sort of by definition, uh, we have a weird gene. Uh, An obsession? That, that when, when we hear it, we become immediately obsessed. But I did maintain a double life, sort of like, you know, Superman or Batman, uh, where by night I was Fred Bartenstein playing and writing about bluegrass. And by day I was, I, I did a good job on my studies. Uh, and what, and what, what was your major? My major was social studies. It was an interdisciplinary major of, you know, history, philosophy, economics, uh, psychology, uh, philosophy, you know, all the social sciences. Um, and what I really wanted was a major in American studies, but Harvard didn't offer that. So this was the closest it would come. And after you graduated school, where did you, uh, where did you end up? Well, my, my research interests as an undergraduate were in urban police innovation. Mm -hmm. I had lived in Newark, New Jersey, lived and worked in a public housing project the year after the Newark riots, 1968-69. Uh, and during my year in Newark, I realized, as we're still realizing today, that urban police behavior is a, uh, a trigger for 
all kinds of issues. And so I decided I would get involved in police innovation. At the time, Dayton, Ohio had the most innovative police department in North America. And Harvard sent me to study the Dayton Police Department. And that was how I met my wife and, and first got to know the Dayton bluegrass scene. And then uh, in 1975, I actually moved here and started working at the Dayton Police Department and then moved quickly on to, to some other jobs. And, and you weren't uh, perhaps enticed to uh, either stay in Boston where there was an active uh, very active uh, bluegrass music scene or, or, or New York. I'm not sure what was happening in New York during that time. Certainly the folk era was happening in, in New York, but you weren't enticed to stay in either of those metropolitan areas. No, no I had this, I, I, I had fallen in love with joy and she was in Dayton uh, and she had a little girl and was not very portable. So it was a matter of me moving to Dayton. Also Howard, I was upset at the time, maybe you remember, that was a time in history when there was tremendous racial violence going on in Boston. Uh, pe people in, in South Boston were throwing bricks through the window of school buses, and I, I couldn't bear it. My heart <laughs> hurt uh, too much to be involved in, in that any farther. I had been working with the Massachusetts State Police on a statewide conflict um, management program. And so, but I didn't know when I moved to Dayton that I would stay here, but the combination of joy, some, some, some interesting work that I was doing and this amazing bluegrass scene ha have kept me here ever since. Now, can you uh, talk a little bit now we're, we're we're, uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be obvious to anyone else, but we're, we're eventually going to lead up to um, uh, industrial strength bluegrass. Uh, but between that time where you moved to Dayton and, uh, and, and where you got involved with editing industrial strength uh, bluegrass, which, which this book and everything else seems to be a cottage industry, unto itself right now it's generated so much buzz i mean you were involved with so many other aspects of um, of the music business i mean the uh, ibm a in the early years the ibm m in the in the early years can you just uh, talk about how you got involved with with those entities well after 1975 howard i realized that that i needed a, a grown-up life uh, and that I could no longer support myself doing these marginal bluegrass activities. And I knew by then that my singing and playing abilities were not uh, up at a master category. I mean, I probably could have worked on the fringes of the bluegrass music, but never would have been very successful. Um, so it was time to move on. I maintained bluegrass as a side activity. And I did some DJ work at the top 40 country station in Dayton. And, and I worked uh, at the public radio station as a volunteer. I had a bluegrass band for a while, the Dorsey Harvey band, uh, continued to MC some festivals around the country, um, did some writing about bluegrass for Bluegrass Unlimited, uh, did some interviews. So I, I kept my finger in the pie and then eventually got back into broadcasting uh, after 
Paul, Joe Mullins started WBZI. Uh, Paul Moon Mullins came and was on that station. And then I did the Bluegrass show on Saturdays uh, starting in 1996. And then uh, from there, uh, added a program on bluegrasscountry.org and on World Space Satellite and eight terrestrial radio stations for the the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame and Museum. Um, and those shows are continuing to run on bluegrasscountry.org on, I believe, Wednesday and Thursday nights. And I did 175 uh, three-hour shows on the history of bluegrass music. And, and what's your professional life like? I mean, not that this isn't professional, of course, but you, you obviously have another source of income. Um, yeah, I had, I had a... a I used to laugh and call it my job of the month club. Um, I, when I left the police department, I worked in the city manager's office for seven years. And then I ran a historic performing arts center in downtown Dayton. And then I edited Dayton magazine. And then for nine years, I was the president of the Dayton foundation and left there and ran the largest independent bookstore east of the Midwest, which happened to be in Dayton and then started a consulting practice in organizational development um, in 1992. And that's where you mentioned that I, among my clients were the International Bluegrass Music Association and then the organization that at the time was called the International Bluegrass Music Museum, along with a number of other clients uh, where we did strategic planning, mediation, facilitation, um, and that kind of work, and I and I'm aware certainly of your 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 standing with the uh, some of the earlier years of the uh, leadership bluegrass program. Right, I was the facilitator of leadership bluegrass from 2000 to 2010. So the first 10 years of the program, uh, yeah, we got it off the ground, and that was super fun. I drive down to Nashville for a better part of a week every year. As I mentioned earlier, I've got a sort of a short stack of books right here, uh, and I'd like to at least uh, touch on some of your uh, authorship. Um, uh, in addition to the the most recent offering, Industrial Strength Bluegrass, I have in front of me the uh, the Bluegrass uh, inductees biographies uh, for the uh, IBMA Hall of Fame and uh, Bluegrass Bluesman, the uh, edited uh, interviews with uh, Buck Graves. Uh, can you chat about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, the the Josh Graves book was the first one that I did. Uh, my grandson set me up on Facebook, and this would have been in the early 2010s. And the first, very first post that I put out on Facebook was, I'm looking for a project to do. And um, Barry Willis, who had written America's Music Bluegrass and was an airline pilot and you know living in Hawaii, contacted me and said, I have this notebook of interviews with Josh Graves that I did in the 90s um, that was supposed to be a, auto, a, a biography or an autobiography, and I've never done anything with it. Would you like to take it and make that your project. So I said, yes, thinking it would be a relatively simple matter. Uh, it wasn't very long before several other large interview uh, 
interviews with Josh Graves were added to my stack. And I describe it as being like uh, a museum curator that's working with a, a mosaic that's in a thousand pieces on the floor and trying to put it together in a way that would be as close as possible to, to, to the, the picture. Uh, so I was taking little bits and pieces from all these interviews and stringing them together in a first person uh, autobiography for Josh Graves. Of course, he had passed away uh, almost a decade earlier, uh, but luckily I knew him and I knew the rest of the bluegrass world. So I was able to do that. And it turned out spectacularly good. I, I believe that if uh, Huckleberry Finn had grown up, he would have spoken the way that Josh Graves speaks. Because mm -hmm. Josh, I mean, had a wonderful vernacular, a storytelling ability. And the the book is something that I recommend to people who have no interest whatsoever in the Dobro or Bluegrass. Just this life of this amazing character who comes out of the Tennessee mountains and then w works all over the world and mm -hmm. becomes the key figure in the introduction of the Bluegrass Dobro. So that was Bluegrass Blues Man, Josh Graves, a memoir, and University of Illinois Press published it in uh, 2014, I believe. It says 2012, copyright 2012, Fred oh. Bartenstein. Oh, wow. All right. Well, then I'm confused it with the next one. So 2012 was the year that uh, the Josh Graves book came out. And then let's see what happened next. I had been writing profiles of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame inductees for the museum in Owensboro that were put up on their website. And I did about half of them and ran out of gas. And so I recruited Gary Reed to take over writing those profiles. And then I would copy edit Gary's work. And it came to me that these belonged in a book that there really ought to be a book about the Bluegrass Hall of Fame inductees. So did it as a fundraising project for the museum. And the most challenging and the most satisfying part of putting that book together was selecting from the universe of photographs, the absolute best photograph of every single inductee to the Hall of Fame. You know, the best John Duffy picture, the best Bill Monroe picture, the best Charlie Waller picture, you know, the best Carlton Haney picture. And that took a huge amount of effort, but it turned out amazingly well. And we were able to get the books printed in China at a very high level of sophistication. The, the photograph reproduction was terrific. Um, so I'm very proud of that book and the museum has sold a lot of them. And how many contributors were, do you know the, the exact number or, or an approximate number of the number of contributors for the photography? Oh, um, at least 20. The quality of, of the book, I mean, it's a hardcover book, un, unlike uh, uh, Bluegrass, uh, Bluesman, and Industrial Strength, un, unless there are hard copy versions available of those books. The, um, the uh, uh, Bluegrass Inductee Biographies is, uh, is, is basically a, uh, it's a lovely coffee table book, almost, if it, but it's more than just photography. The, the, the biographies are just ter uh, a terrific read in, 
in that in that volume. Thank you. I I so appreciate that. Um, one interesting other uh, fact about the photography is that a lot of these pictures were taken back in the day. I wanted every one of these artists to be pictured at his or her peak uh, when they were at the top of their game. And a lot of those were back in the you know, 50s, 60s, early 70s, when very little color photography was being done of bluegrass. Uh, the publications were only printing in black and white. Color film was expensive. It was hard to develop at home. So most of the bluegrass photographers were working in black and white. Um, so it, it was like finding a needle in the haystack to find fabulous pictures in color. And if I had a choice between the best color photo and the best black and white picture, if the black and white one was better, I did use it. But I think you'll find that more than 80% of the pictures in that book are, are color shots, which makes them very rare. Yes. And, and, and almost none of those photos had ever been reproduced before. And were they never touched, been published? Were they were they touched up at all, or or did you basically just use them as you received them? Um, <laughs> Chubby Wise's picture had lived inside his fiddle case for for uh, forty years, and so that one had a lot of scratches on it. And we did need to do some some touch up. It seems to me there might have been one or two others, but for the most part, the photographers were able to. Uh, put together really nice, uh, digit, dense digital files of those photos uh, that we reproduced. And how much time now um, transpired between um, uh, the inductee biographies and industrial strength bluegrass? When did you start work editing on the, on the most current volume? Or was there but something you, in between? Yeah, you, you skipped two books in between. I'm sorry. Why don't you go ahead and uh, let's, let's talk about that. Lots of people in the uh, roots music world know Joe Wilson. Joe Wilson grew up in, in the easternmost community of Tennessee and had an amazing life before he became the executive director of the National Council for Traditional Arts that put on the National Folk Festival and tours like Masters of the Banjo uh, that went around the United States and around the world uh, exposing not only great bluegrass musicians, but also blues musicians, people from, you know, Native American dancers, uh, Norteño performers. So Joe Wilson, I had known um, back when I was in college, he'd written a couple of great articles for Mule Skinner News Magazine. And so when Joe would bring his tours to Dayton, he and I would, would connect again. This is, you know, 30 years later. And it came to me that Joe was such an amazing writer that his writing ought to be anthologized. And I called Joe and said, how would you like me to edit an anthology of your writing. And he immediately became excited about the idea. And I started getting big brown envelopes of, of various articles he had done in the mailbox. And we got started on that project and then Joe died. 
And so half of it, I had the benefit of working with Joe and the other half without him. It turned out that it was two books, Howard. The first book was called Roots Music in America. And it was the writing that Joe Wilson had done about, you know, bluegrass, blues, old time music, um, you know, all, all, all kinds of, of, of phenomena in Roots music. And that has been used not only as fun reading for people, uh, but it's been used in, in courses on Roots music. The other book, Lucky Joe's Namesake, was, is a book, uh, an anthology of writing that illustrate Joe Wilson's amazing career. Um, not only did he run the National Council for Traditional Arts, but he was also involved in the civil rights movement in Birmingham. He was a bouncer at the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, he wrote liner notes for Star Day, hung out with Willie Nelson and Marty Robbins. Um, he was a fundraiser for historically black colleges and universities. And, uh, and then Later in his career at NCTA and during retirement, he started the Crooked Road, Virginia's Music Heritage Trail. He was the spark plug behind that. And he also was the brains and the brawn behind the Blue Ridge Music Center on the Blue Ridge Parkway. So, the, and, and that's just a piece of this guy's interesting life. He writes like a dream. Mm. It's funny. It's insightful. Um, and so those two books were published simultaneously by the University of Tennessee Press. And I think 2015 is the copyright on those two. And as soon as those went to bed, um, I started trying to talk up the idea of having a book about the bluegrass history of Southwestern Ohio, Cincinnati, Dayton, Hamilton, Middletown, and Springfield. And for those that aren't familiar with this part of the world, that's about a 50, a 50 mile circle uh, centered on Middletown, Ohio, which is halfway between Cincinnati and Dayton. Well, that, this is this is a, a a great segue. Let let me let me ask you this. I mean, there, there was from the South post World War II, there were multiple migrations from I guess the area that we commonly refer to as Appalachia. I mean, I'm 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 familiar with the. I'm most familiar with the migration that ended up here in the uh, in the Washington D.C. area and 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 uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and and other industrial centers on the on the East Coast. Um, in in reading industrial strength bluegrass, th there appears to be something. Um, I'm not sure if it's more than what I think I understand to have happened he here in D.C. in Baltimore. It certainly is is unique. It is is was that migration to the Miami Valley? Was that truly a something unique that happened with in regards uh, and in comparison to other migrations to other uh, industrial areas in the East? Well, Howard, let's put this in the context of one of the biggest social movements on earth in the 20th century, and that was a migration of both black and white Southerners to the north and to the west. Huge phenomenon. Um, you know, millions of people picked up and moved. And Appalachia was getting to be a tough 
part of the country at that point. Uh, the farms weren't that productive. The timber had been uh, had been reduced and the coal mining industry wasn't doing well. So it was a tough time in the Southern mountains. And so migrations began around the time of the First World War and then continued during the Depression and then really bloomed during the Second World War when war industries in the North needed industrial workers. And then in the post-war boom, continuing to need industrial workers. So what's interesting about migration is that there are different streams. People east of the Allegheny Mountains tended to migrate up the East Coast. Then they would go to Richmond, Washington, Baltimore, um, New York, Boston, and Maine. And I'm talking about people like Del McCurry's family from North Carolina or, or people from Virginia like uh, um, Earl Taylor. Or the Lundy's perhaps. Yeah. yeah, the Lundy's from North Carolina. They were following a migration stream that coalesced around Washington and Baltimore. West of those mountains, in eastern Kentucky largely, but also East Tennessee, southwestern Virginia coal fields, uh, West Virginia and southeastern Ohio, which is actually part of Appalachia, the, those folks moved up a different channel. They were going up what's now known as Interstate 75. At the time, it was called the Dixie Highway, US 25. And two things happened. Not only were a lot of those Kentuckians, Tennesseans, Virginians, West Virginians moving north uh, along that road, but the Cincinnati-Dayton area was an industrial powerhouse. And we had Dayton alone had five divisions of General Motors, the National Cash Register Company, you know, GE in Cincinnati, huge Armco Steel in Middletown. Um, we're talking about probably the most successful industrial um, megalopolis in world history. Uh, happening here. So the demand for workers was high and the proximity to, to Kentucky is, you know, southwestern Ohio butts right up against Kentucky. If, if I were to compare the the numbers of of those of that migration that ended up in southwestern um, Ohio versus the uh, the migrants that stuck closer to the East Coast. How, how do the, those numbers compare? Do you some they're, sense They're of probably about the same. Um, the, the benefit for the, for the Kentucky migrants was that if they moved to Dayton, Cincinnati, Middletown, Hamilton, Springfield, they could get home on the weekends. Mm. It was not that difficult to go back and see the family and the relatives in the old place that a lot of people thought they would eventually move back to. Uh, a few did, but most stayed. But then others of them kept up the so-called hillbilly highway and went past us to Toledo, Detroit, Chicago. Um, so those are, are further magnets. And it, as a bluegrass historian, you know that there was also a bluegrass scene in Detroit in particular, and then a, to a lesser extent in Chicago. If, if I... Um... Uh, use my own limited knowledge of um, 
of uh, what I experienced um, probably a little a little late in in the uh, uh, mid to late seventies, early eighties in D.C. and Baltimore versus what was happening uh, during that time frame, and I and I, I guess really earlier um, in uh, in the uh, uh, Dayton Cincinnati area. In, in my mind. Uh, what was happening in DC and Baltimore was significant, but after reading the book, I'm saying, well, it, it would seem like uh, there was five or six times or 10 times the activity uh, in, in your area than there was in, let's say, DC, Baltimore, Philadelphia, or am I just sort of uh, 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 interpreting my memory incorrectly? In the history of bluegrass music, there are two urban met metropolitan areas where bluegrass came of age, where bluegrass moved out of the South, came North and began to really blossom as an industry. First was Southwestern Ohio. Um, starting in 1947, you're, we're able to document a significant bluegrass scene here. And it continued from 1947 up until around 1989 to be not only a place where great artists were based, but where records were being released, where radio was broadcasting bluegrass out to the country and to the world. Um, and then maybe five years later, Washington, Baltimore uh, catches up. And when Buzz Busby and the Stoneman family are the sort of the original vectors for bluegrass in that area. And then the bluegrass scene starts to heat up in Washington, Baltimore, but took on a different character. Uh, Washington, Baltimore, particularly Washington, bluegrass became popular among non-Appalachians, among you know, college students, legislators, federal workers, um, what you would call northern mainstream audiences. Uh, that was largely during the folk boom when the folk music uh, world became interested in bluegrass. And the country gentlemen uh, found a spot right between folk music and bluegrass music and became the signature artists for Washington. The seldom seen followed them in a style of bluegrass music that appeals to, you know, middle and upper middle class suburbanites is the sort of the definition that the sweet spot for Washington bluegrass. Whereas back in our area, although some of our Appalachians were doing quite well professionally, um, it was 90% an Appalachian phenomenon in our region. In the 1970s, some non-Appalachian kids, uh, hippies, if you will, began to get involved and start bands. I mean, the Hot Mud family would be an example of that. And there are a number of, of other, uh, Ron Thomason and the Dry Branch Fire Squad, the bands that started in our area in the 70s. But by the 80s, it was kind of back to being an Appalachian phenomenon. Today, we've got first, second, third, and fourth generation Appalachians that represent maybe, you know, 20, 30% of the population of the Cincinnati, Dayton megalopolis. 
And so we still have one of the largest bluegrass audiences on earth and it's an active market, but we're no longer the creative uh, center that we once were. Bluegrass has, you know, bluegrass record companies uh, have, the industry's changed. Uh, it's much more difficult to have a little mom and pop record company. At one time, our area probably had a hundred uh, companies that were re releasing bluegrass and related music. Um, so, you know, life moves on. Today, Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers are, and, and Larry Sparks are the two major acts that are still based in our region. For those that aren't unaware, can uh, and and uh, and the the number of, of bands, I mean, it would be impossible to uh, uh, during this podcast to uh, sort of chat about every every single band that sort of made a name for itself during during that period. But can you touch on some of the better known bands that that made it to national prominence during uh, during the heyday? Well, the biggest driver of bluegrass careers was a radio barn dance that was at WPFB in Middletown called the WPFB Jamboree. It started in the late 40s and it went for, I don't know, maybe five years. But during that period, this little tiny radio station with a, uh, a live show in a barn and then sometimes it was in a tent had a, a particular bluegrass character. So Bobby Osborne's first public performance was at the WPFB Jamboree as a teenager. And then Jimmy Martin came uh, to that Jamboree and that was where he first played with J.D. Crow. Jim and Jesse were on that Jamboree and did their first recording while they were uh, appearing there. Red Allen and Frank Wakefield came out of that scene. Noah Craze, Hilo Brown, all of those artists, an amazing number of future Bluegrass Hall of Fame members worked that almost, almost forgotten uh, compared to the Grand Ole Opry or the Wheeling Jamboree. The WPFB Jamboree was a super driver of Bluegrass careers. It's just amazing. Uh, I, as I was uh, uh, reading the book, the uh, the term that came to my mind, which uh, which was not original, because then I saw it in print late, later on in the book, was uh, uh, referred to uh, um, uh, the happening there is as a big bang explosion of uh, of bluegrass music and creativity, and not only that, but all of the ancillary businesses that were formed to support the music to support those bands. It's incredible. There, there had to be hundreds, if not thousands of ancillary businesses uh, within that bluegrass music industry. And what's amazing is that they were able to do it without much education, with no access to capital, that, that they put this infrastructure together and made it sing for decades. Uh, I think it's a remarkable story. Howard, Americans tend to know that New Orleans was the heyday for jazz, that Chicago was the heyday for blues, that Nashville is the heyday for country music. They do not, the bluegrass world, I think knows that Washington, Baltimore was a capital for bluegrass, but 
outside this region, I don't think America knows that Southwestern Ohio was such an important uh, epicenter for the development of this music. One of the mistakes that people make is to think that bluegrass is a rural music. Bluegrass draws on some earlier themes that were in rural music, but it came of age very much so in the North. Lester Flatt, Earl Scruggs, uh, Chubby Wise, Howard Watts' recordings were all made in Chicago. Um, you know, or Bill Monroe and Charlie Monroe started their act in Chicago. Um, it, it, it was when Noah Craze migrated from Kentucky or Red Allen migrated from Kentucky uh, to, to our area or the Osborne family moves that they start to develop. That they're first exposed to bluegrass music and become bluegrass musicians. Uh, another thing that happened at ground zero of the Big Bang, 1947, was that Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys played two sold-out shows at, at uh, Dayton's um, uh, Memorial Hall, which has had at the time 2,500 seats. So that's 5,000 seats are sold for Bill Monroe in 1947. Bobby Osborne as a young teenager is there. Uh, and that's the moment at which this, and you know, remember 1947, still Flat Scruggs and Wise are in the band. Uh, so it's a direct transmission of energy from Bill Monroe's band to this region. And, and it's never stopped. Has, has, it, has anyone ever um, quantified the economic impact to the area that the industry, that the blue, specifically the bluegrass music industry had uh, during the heyday? No one's ever quantified it, Howard, but the dirty little secret of bluegrass, um, and I hate to be you know, putting it out here, is that the bluegrass industry does not generate a whole lot of revenue. Uh, people do bluegrass because they love it or because they don't want to do the alternative. They don't want to work in a factory. They don't want to work in a farm. Or in some cases, their spouses support them. Uh, it's like ballet dancers who don't earn much and great ballet takes place all over the world. Bluegrass is in many ways a labor of love. You can probably count on the fingers of one hand the bluegrass musicians who make six-figure incomes. Um, Flatt and Scruggs are, uh, are, the, are, are the exception. Uh, Alison Krauss is the exception. But for the most part, bluegrass bands, bluegrass musicians are making somewhere down in the you know, supervisor, low white collar uh, wages. So the long answer to your question, King Records, which is, was based in Cincinnati and was putting out the Stanley Brothers, Reno and Smiley and Moore and Napier, um, and, all, and also in the blues world, R&B world, James Brown was their largest artist, uh, a number of others. The original record of The Twist was made at King. Uh, King was a significant uh, economic driver. There were a lot of King records sold all over the world. They were played on radio stations and, and you know, bought at record stores. Most of the other records made in our area uh, appeal to the bluegrass subculture. 
you know, the Vetco records, the Pine Tree records, the Melody records, the King Bluegrass records, uh, Jay Lynn's, uh, they're names that the that bluegrass collectors know. Uh, and I have to say here that Ricky Skaggs and Keith Whitley's first recording ever was made in Dayton for the Jay Lynn label. Uh, was, Jay, is that the duet album? It was 1971. Yeah. Uh, Ricky Skaggs and Keith Whitley made an album for Jack Lynch on, and it was put out on Jay Lynn mm -hmm. with Ralph Stanley's band behind them. Um so that's an example of, and record collectors love to find these obscure 78s and 45s. I'd like to tell you one story that relates, that, that ties our two communities together, Washington, Baltimore, and Cincinnati, Dayton. In 1952, I think it was, a teenage Pete Kuykendall, the editor of Bluegrass Unlimited, is on his way to Indiana to to stay with relatives. He's, he changes trains in downtown Cincinnati. He's already a, a bluegrass fanatic. So he goes to Jimmy Skinner Music Center and buys an incredibly obscure record on the Kitty label, a 78, of Lou and Sonny Osborne singing New Freedom Bell, a song that Teen, that you know, middle school or early high schooler Louise Osborne had written about the bell in Berlin. So Pete Kuykendall takes that record home. And then some years later, probably almost a decade later, drags that record out and plays it for the country gentleman. And country ever since the song New Freedom Bell, oh ring, oh ring, New Freedom Bell, is a was associated with the country gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's there's a link. As there always is, probably. Let me ask uh, the the explosion in in the. Um, and is it the Miami Valley? Is that a, is that we, a proper? we call it the Miami Valley? A lot of people get confused about that name uh, because they associate Miami with Florida. Miami was the name of an Indian tribe, and they were one of the tribes that were in this area. There are two rivers that are called Miami, the Great Miami River and the Little Miami River. They're essentially parallel to each other, and they both empty into the Ohio River near Cincinnati. The land between those two Miami rivers uh, was a, extremely fertile. The Native Americans uh, revered it and even agreed they would make it a common hunting ground and not have permanent settlements on it. Then a, uh, somebody who had lent the United States money during the revolution was able to buy up 300,000 acres uh, between these two rivers, the, the Sims Purchase. And uh, that was the beginning of this conurbation that today we call the Miami Valley. Got it. Uh, people have heard, I think, of Miami University, which is here. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, welcome to the club. Now you know what Miami Valley means. Gotcha. Uh, how, how long did the boom last? I think the boom lasted from 1947 
which is when not only did Bill Monroe perform at Memorial Hall in Dayton, but WPFB, the radio station in Middletown, went on the air that year. Those were the two beginning shots. And then 1989 is where I believe the Dayton as a major international bluegrass center, you know, since the Miami Valley as an international bluegrass center began to wane. Some things that happened in 1989, we were starting to move heavily into CDs at that time. And the vinyl records that had been made by these little record companies in Dayton, Cincinnati region were not making it to CD. Uh, you may remember we went through this period of cassettes uh, just before that, and the cassettes were definitely not making it onto CDs. Also, 1989 was the year that, that Paul Moon Mullins left WPFB in Middletown. And 1989 was the year that City Folk, a Dayton folk arts organization, put on a show at Memorial Hall, that same place that Bill Monroe played in 1947, um, 42 years later, uh, puts on a show called the Dayton Bluegrass Reunion, at which major artists who had gotten their start here got back together and performed in that hall. Uh, you know, the Osborne brothers, Red Allen, Frank Wakefield, you know, J.D. Crow, uh, Paul Mullins and the traditional grass, the hot mud family, the dry ranch fire squad. I may have those acts slightly off, um, but that was kind of our grand celebration of uh, the closing of that era. And since then, I hasten to say, we're, we continue to be a big bluegrass market. There's plenty of bluegrass on the radio here, and there are plenty of uh, shows to go to, festivals. Uh, but we don't have the record companies here anymore, and we don't have the, we don't have the artists that are based here, um, you know, groups forming. It's, it's, it's a different scene. And what Dayton, used, Dayton, Cincinnati used to do is now happening in, you know, Nashville or Asheville, uh, Kingsport, Johnson City. Uh, the same thing has happened in Washington, Baltimore. I think you would have to agree that the glory years at, of Washington, Baltimore as the capital of bluegrass in the world uh, is no longer so. I, I would definitely agree with that, uh, that the the the, the lo locations where uh, bluegrass and in the industry is generated has become so diverse now almost uh, and with the available technology. Yes, go ahead. And, you know, you know, I forgot one that today is a major creative center for bluegrass and related music. That's Boulder, Colorado, which is, you know, or Telluride and, and uh, Rocky Grass and you know, jam grass is, is a huge phenomenon that sort of centers on Boulder. Um, so that's another important uh, head end place today. I knew, well, and I realized that I haven't told you the story of how the book came to be. Um, I started by saying that I knew having lived in this area since 1975 and being a bluegrass historian, I knew how important the Miami Valley bluegrass story was, and I knew how fragile it was. 
because it was generally not known in the world and the people that lived it were past, starting to pass rapidly from the scene. So I knew it needed to be collected and preserved. Uh, I didn't want to do, it was gonna be too much work for me to do all of that research and turn it into a book. Kurt Ellison, a pro professor at Miami University who had written a book about country music was retiring. And at the 2016 International Country Music Conference, I asked Kurt if he would write this book. I said, I will donate my time to do the research and you know, support it and copy it. Uh, he said, no, I'm not gonna write it, but I tell you what, let's do, I can get Miami University to underwrite a lecture series and we'll, we will contract with lecturers to each speak on one aspect of the Miami Valley bluegrass history. You know, one on recording, one on radio, one on venues, one on, uh, you know, gospel bluegrass music. And then we will put as part of their contract that they have to write a, you know, 10,000 word chapter on that topic. And then we'll string those to, you and I'll string those together into a book. And it probably would have been easier to just write it mm -hmm. <laughs> than to find the right authors and to string it together and have it work. But it ended up working. Uh, we spent five years, 1916 to uh, 2016 to 2021, mm -hmm. putting this together and finding the right authors and, you know, copy editing it, fact checking it, collecting photographs, uh, you know, all those pieces that go into making a book. But the book turned out great. Uh, I'm now happy that we had different lenses, different authors involved with it. All of them were expert. And I don't think any one of us could have been as expert as the 10 of us were. Um, but then Joe Mullins, who owns a chain of radio stations, heads the Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers and was the past chairman of the IBMA and, mm -hmm. and Entertainer of the Year, uh, got excited about industrial strength, strength bluegrass. And he had the brainstorm to, to, be, to put out a, a record. He had been... Uh, excited by what uh, what Akira Otsuka had done on the John Duffy project, for, which took 10 years to put together for Smithsonian Folkways. So Joe Mullins went to Smithsonian Folkways and said, if I assemble some of the top artists in country and bluegrass music and have them reinterpret the music from the glory years in the Miami Valley, would you put it out? And so that came to pass. Joe put it together during the pandemic, which is a, a miracle because virtually very little of that music was recorded in the same studio at the same time. It was pieced together. But Joe knocked it out of the park. Um, and the, the, the book came out in January of this year and the CD came out in March and the combined buzz of those two phenomena have exceeded my wildest expectations. Bluegrass Unlimited magazine in the month of April devoted 
probably half the magazine to the industrial strength bluegrass phenomenon. There was were reviews of both the album and the book and an uh, the story of Paul Mullins, the story of Joe Mullins, a piece on Appalachian migration. It was, uh, and, and, and we're getting buzz all over the place. Uh, and, uh, it, it's great. I'm, you know, I'm, I, this is what I've been preaching and I'm glad that people are, are, are getting it, that, that this region did some important things. And uh, again, for our, our, our listenership, um, uh, can you uh, uh, name either a few or all of the artist con- contributors? That, because it's a very, very impressive, uh, impressive list of, uh, of artists. I'll also mention that uh, Joe Mullen has a very impressive series of uh, short videos, very watchable videos that are available on on YouTube, which uh, describes some of the events and places that were um, mentioned in the uh, in the book itself. Some of the artists that are involved in the Industrial Strength Bluegrass CD, uh, Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers, Dan Tominski, Mo Pitney, Merle Monroe, Leanne Womack, Josh Williams, Bradley Walker, Russell Moore, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, Larry Cordell, Rhonda Vincent, Caleb Doherty, Sierra Hall, Ronnie Bowman, Don Rigsby, Kenny Smith, Daly and Vincent, The Graskels, Jim Lauderdale, High Fidelity, The Isaacs, Vince Gill, Bobby Osborne, and the Oak Ridge Boys. The Oak Ridge Boys. <laughs> it is so cool. I always knew that the Isaacs old recording of Garden Tomb but which never that was an example of a song i think it was on a cassette and it was played a lot in sacred bluegrass radio uh, programs back in the day probably the 80s in this area and so joe wanted to resurrect the song garden tomb and not only did he get the isaacs family back together joe isaacs hadn't been a member of the band for some time but then they had this brilliant idea of getting the Oak Ridge boys to come back to gospel and sing behind the Isaacs. I mean, you talk about vocal perfection. Um, it, it moves me every time I hear that track. But I'm wondering if um, I can sort of put you on the spot a little bit and put on your crystal ball the bluegrass music, the industry, where where do you think it's heading in the, I don't know, I wouldn't say decade, next few years, three to five years? Well, look, I guess because I'm a, a, a social theorist, you know, social scientist, I need to go out farther. I think 500 years from now, the classic bluegrass that was made by, you know, Flatten Scruggs, Bill Monroe, the Stanley Brothers, Reno and Smiley, Jimmy Martin, Jim and Jesse, and, and further and on, that's gonna still be considered important in, um, in world musical history. Uh, just like jazz will have been and, and Bach or Beethoven or Mozart would be. So I have no question that bluegrass is significant enough that it is going to continue to be studied and played. Now, uh, in the next three to five years, what we, what's going on in this particular phase of bluegrass? 
is a spreading out and a convergence of bluegrass with other genres. Uh, and I know how badly that upsets the core tra traditional bluegrass fan, but it's happening. It, it's real. Uh, and I teach bluegrass history at the University of Dayton. And I have young students who have not been exposed to bluegrass before. And I tell them to go out and find something they like. And what they find on the internet and come back and play in class is this evolving sound. Uh, jamgrass, if you will, a, a sort of a convergence of bluegrass and rock and roll ideas, um, which is appealing to, to young people. I mean, bordering on Mumford and Sons, uh, for example. Um, the word bluegrass has always been a difficult one for, for artists. Uh, because they, I mean, all the way going back to Mac Wiseman and, and you know, Jim and Jesse and, and the Stanley brothers, they felt that, that being called bluegrass narrowed their potential market and that they resisted being named that, although they, the bluegrass world supported them dramatically. Uh, so today, the infamous string dusters face that same problem. You know, are we a bluegrass band? Well, I suppose you could say, but that's not all we do. And please don't call us that because people who think they know what bluegrass is and don't like it won't even bother to listen to us. So what kind of music do you play, infamous string dusters? Well, we play infamous string dusters music. And, and Billy Strings will say, I play Billy Strings music. And, you know, Leftover Salmon say, uh, I forget what it is. They call it something slam grass, did it, did it, did it, did it. And so the word bluegrass is sort of hanging on by its fingernails. I think it will survive. Um, but if I wished anything for the next three to five years, it would be that, that, that people take a breath and appreciate all the many manifestations. They may not like it, but at least accept it and welcome it. The manifestations of, of creativity that's being done on these acoustical instruments. Um, we went through a period, Howard, where we were calling, using the term new acoustic music. We're past that. Then people have toyed with this word Americana. I don't think that's going to hang on. Uh, we still debate what country means in country music. Um, so, so I think we're in for some 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 strange new worlds, but the creativity's still there. One of the things that really uh, excites me is these higher education bluegrass programs that are turning out spectacularly comp capable, competent musicians, East I, Tennessee and, State University, Moorhead and, and, State. And uh, in your opinion, and uh, because I was going to ask this a little later, um, the the overall diversity of, of musicians uh, the, these days and the formalization of, of education of bluegrass, a, a good thing in your view? It's a very, very, very good thing. And it's way overdue. Uh, 
there's probably more than a hundred jazz studies programs at colleges and universities throughout the country and probably 20 bluegrass programs. And except for ETSU and Moorhead, there's sort of, and, and Berkeley uh, in Boston, those three are of significant, uh, you know, weight, character and enrollment. In fact, at ETSU, there's something like 80 bluegrass majors and 80 bluegrass minors and 40, four zero student bands. Um, so, yeah, we're just getting started with that. There will now, be more bluegrass instruction. Let, let, let me ask, and, and you, can, you can choose not, not to answer this. Um, um, with regards to the evolution of the music and the formalization of the, the programs, do you think this is going to put a lot of pressure on, on our trade organization, the IBMA, to somehow make some changes within? Or, or are you generally pleased with the direction of I, IBMA? I, I will say at the outset that I'm, a, uh, I'm an enthusiastic supporter and contributor to IBMA. Well, I think IBMA is doing is a, a very good job under the circumstances of trying to maintain what they called a big tent to create a community that includes rather than excludes uh, anybody who wants to be associated with bluegrass music. Um, it's the worst idea in the world to, to treat somebody badly that wants to learn about bluegrass or wants to be around it. Um, the generation that has held so conservatively to bluegrass staying within the characteristics that it had in its first two decades is aging. <laughs> it will not be here a whole lot longer. I mean, you and I uh, are somewhere toward probably the, the, you know, the latter third of that generation. Uh, so it will pass on the generations that are coming behind us seem to me for the most part to be much more open and uh, accepting of music as music. Um, not having to follow the, this, this old argument of, uh, you know, what is bluegrass anyway? Um, it's like how many angels dance on the head of a pin. No one will ever, uh, although they think they do, no one will ever define that in a way that, uh, that stays put beyond that one person's mind. There, there is no bluegrass police force. You know, you could make the case, I'm not making it on your airwaves, but you could make the, make the case that there is nothing, there's no such thing as bluegrass. It's we've agreed to call a bunch of phenomena that, that use banjos, guitars, mandolins, fiddles, string basses, and dobros, uh, and that has drawn from some earlier material and woven it together in some reasonably similar ways. But once you start, and we, get, we go through this in the college course I teach, once you start trying to define it immediately, there start to be exceptions and difficulties. One of my favorite arguments is with people who say, if it doesn't have a banjo, it's not bluegrass. 
I said, okay, so Tony Rice's guitar solos are not bluegrass. Are, uh, so Doyle Lawson's acapella gospel quartets are not bluegrass. It, 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 you know, Claire Lynch during the period she recorded without a banjo, that's not bluegrass. So, you know, maybe it's a useful word. It is what I worry about with IBMA, that they have to be the Bluegrass Association. And if bluegrass is not a, a descriptor that means anything to the public, to the world, then it's going to be by definition hard for IBMA to continue to congeal. But, you know, to breathe deeply, there's still a giant market for bluegrass and there's still a lot of people using that term uh, so so i'm 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 not sad and and i know that the quality of musicianship today uh is the best it's ever been i won't um, say that i won't say the singing but the playing of instruments is currently at a peak you you prefer the older styles of singing? You think that the were much more emotive or much more? Well, not only more emotive, but I think that from a from a technical vocal production, from a quality of sound, and for the complexity of the harmonies, I, I don't think we're in a glory year for bluegrass singing. With with a few exceptions, you know, the Isaacs will knock it out of the park. Um, but when you compare the fiddling, the banjo playing, the mandolin playing, the string bass playing, the dobro playing of today with earlier decades, your ears can hear uh, that it's improving. So what is next for Fred Bartenstein? <laughs> you know what? I am helping a steel guitar player named Steve Fischel or Fischel. I'm realizing I need to learn how to pronounce his I, name. I, I know Steve. Uh, how do you pronounce I, it? Uh, I've always pronounced it uh, Fischel. Uh, All right. Well, uh, Steve Steve Fischel has been spending a decade writing the biography of steel guitar hero Buddy Emmons. And I am now helping Steve polish that into what I think is going to be a killer book. You're not going to see the name Fred Bartenstein. I mean, maybe he'll thank me in the preface, but it's not going to be on the cover or the spine. It's Steve's actually yes. Uh, uh, Steve was largely responsible for a Buddy Emmons uh, tribute CD that came out a, a few years ago. Steve, he was indeed. And so now I'm, tr I'm working on a chapter a day. He's got this almost finished. But I am super excited because I'm a giant Buddy Emmons fan. Uh, Darn and, it, Fred, so am I. <laughs> and so the, the reading this, it, it takes me a while to work through it because I keep having to go to YouTube and, you know, listening to the songs that they're describing. Uh, and it, it, it's superb stuff. When I finish this book, you know, I don't know. Well, in Bluegrass. Um, I don't know if you know, but I am the president and chair of the International Bluegrass Music Foundation, the IBMA Foundation. Uh, Nancy Cardwell is our executive director, and, and that's my primary bluegrass activity these days. That was Fred Bartenstein talking with Howard Parker about his long career in bluegrass. Learn more about Fred at Bartenstein and Bluegrass, www.fredbartenstein.com, and that's spelled F-R-E-D, 
B-A-R-T-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. You can listen to more episodes of Bluegrass Stories on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple and Google Podcast, and at katydaily.com. I'm Katie Daly, and as always, thank you for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Bluegrass Stories.